Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. If you want to understand what keeps U.S. military leaders awake, just listen to Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall. China, China, China. He's right. The Asian superpower is growing its military capabilities, and their leaders have demonstrated a clear intent to assert themselves around the globe in ways that often conflict with American interests and values. On the flip side, we say it all the time, the U.S. military is not trained, organized, or equipped to fight a near-peer adversary. It hasn't been since the end of the Cold War. The cuts of the 90s paired with the focus on counterinsurgency operations for the last 20 years have taken a major toll. It wasn't always like this. In the years after World War II, our country understood the growing threat posed by the Soviet Union and leaders built a strong deterrent force. It was all about maintaining peace through strength. Regardless of the finer details, American Cold War military strength was drastically different than what we see today. Fighter and bomber innovations in the 50s and 60s were unprecedented. The space race of the 60s unlocked technologies that put satellites in orbit and men on the moon. The 1970s created the Air Force that deterred war through the height of the Cold War in the 1980s and saw the fall of the Soviet Union at the end of that decade. F-15s, F-16s, F-117s, A-10s, B-1s, B-2s, E-3s, KC-10s, C-5s, and more. This force was put to the test in Desert Storm, and the results were beyond decisive. But the story obviously sees some challenges from that point forward, given the peace dividend leaders sought in the 1990s and focused highly on ground-centric, permissive operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. During the last 30 years, the U.S. Air Force capability and capacity eroded. It's now the oldest and smallest since World War II. And during that time, an ambitious China has secured its spot on the national security stage as the fastest and largest threat growing, challenging America's interests around the globe. Now, on last week's Rendezvous, we discussed DOD's annual China report. They just released it. The feedback to that conversation has been overwhelming. The document is officially known as the Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China 2023. It's technically released to Congress, but it's designed for a public audience, so we recommend you take a look. We've put a link to the report in the show notes, so with that, we want to continue this conversation. The 2022 National Security Strategy states that the People's Republic of China, PRC, is the only competitor to the United States with the intent and increasingly the capacity to reshape the international order. As a result, the 2022 National Defense Strategy identifies the PRC as the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. As the PRC seeks to achieve national rejuvenation by its centenary in 2049, Chinese Communist Party CCP leaders view a modern, capable, and world-class military as essential to overcoming what Beijing sees as an increasingly turbulent international environment.
So I am very excited to welcome back Mike Dom, the newest senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute, a career naval intelligence officer. Mike has served as the assistant U.S. Naval attache in Beijing. He was also the senior naval intelligence officer for China at the Office of Naval Intelligence, and we are honored to have Mike on our team. The insights and perspective he brings to our work is crucial for understanding where air and space power needs to go and why. So, Mike, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. It was great to have you on last week, and by popular demand, we are happy to host you here for an encore. Thanks, Slick. Happy to be here. So, Mike, I really appreciate you joining me today. And before we get into the report, I want to give you the mic for a minute to share your background with the audience. And, you know, just tell us about your time as a naval officer and what did you do and where were you stationed? Yeah, so I've been getting a lot of questions about why a Navy guy is here at the Mitchell Institute and what he knows about aerospace power. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I think most of my military career was focused on aerospace power, even if it wasn't strictly Air Force aerospace power. You know, right out the gate, first tour, uh, focused on the Balkans, actually deployed to Aviano Air Base in northern Italy for about a year. Uh, I was there with three different Marine Corps FNA-18 fighter squadrons supporting the United Nations peacekeeping mission in Bosnia, enforcing the NATO no-fly zone, if you remember when that was going on. So while I was there in Aviano, I worked with the 31st Fighter Wing, as well as the two F-16 squadrons that had moved down to Aviano from Germany, the 555th and the 510th, affectionately known as the Triple Nickel and the Five and Dime. And after an aircraft carrier deployment with one of those Marine squadrons, I stayed on in Europe, uh, moved to London at our naval headquarters, and ended up back in Italy for Operation Allied Force, the NATO air campaign against the former Yugoslavia. So from there, back to D.C. in 2000, lost a few colleagues on 9-11 who were at the Pentagon, uh, started that global war on terrorism and, and supported the forays into Afghanistan and Iraq uh, from a staff back in Washington. Returned to sea on the aircraft carrier USS John F. Kennedy as the senior intelligence officer for the carrier Air Wing and uh, spent eight months in the Gulf conducting close air support and strike missions in Iraq. 2006, uh, having been you know focused on Europe and the Middle East, I figured I should know something about the Pacific. So I moved out to Hawaii um, at the uh, PACOM Intel shop, now Indo-PACOM, and uh, there is first assigned as the branch chief for China Air Force and Air Defense Analysis. Later on, got uh, tapped to be a naval attache and went through Chinese language training and attache school and then operated out of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 2012 to 2015. So then, you know, kind of on the glide path to uh, retirement, I moved back to D.C. and the Office of Naval Intelligence, where, as you said, I was the senior naval intelligence officer from China to round things out and then retired in 2017. Absolutely amazing career. And of course, you know, we had a little bit of overlap mission set wise with the Balkans. You, you mentioned that I was a triple nickel guy and, and we've talked about that on the podcast, but yeah, you know, doing the peacekeeping missions uh, for Bosnia and Kosovo were pretty intense, you know, even into the early 2000s. So I appreciate that rundown of your stellar military career. And I'd like to ask you after your military career, you know, you worked with various organizations doing research and analysis on China. So can you tell me about that path? Yeah, so, so after the Navy, I went over to the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, where I focused on foreign technology and threats, main focus on China, obviously. Folks may be wondering what a university lab is uh, doing with a threat expert, but APL is actually an advanced research and development center for the Navy, the Air Force, and other DOD customers. From there, a couple of years ago, I went to the MITRE Corporation, another federally funded research and development center that supports the Department of Defense and also the U.S. intelligence community 
with analysis and uh, technology development. So over the past few years, I'd done a number of workshops and war games with the uh, Mitchell Institute, and that's what uh, got me involved with them. And uh, I made the move over to Mitchell just a couple of months ago here in uh, September 2023. Well, we are so thrilled to have you, and your experience is tremendously helpful uh, here at Mitchell. It's also nice to have someone with a good sense of humor for our Air Force and Naval uh, rivalry that we have, and it's always fun to razz each other about that. In all seriousness, I, I do want to hop into the report, and I want to read the first couple of lines from the executive summary to set the tone. So, Mike, two things really stand out to me. And and first, the PRC is uh, the only competitor with the intent and capacity uh, to reshape international order, says the report. And and the second thing is the PRC is the pacing challenge for the DOD. So can you shed some light on why China has frankly decided to be this competitor and why it's moved out in a way that is the pacing threat for the United States? Yeah, Slick, I would say that, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't know that China's decided to be a competitor recently as much as we have recognized that China is that competitor. But let me get something out of the way right up front. Okay, so I see there, like when it comes to China, there are three kinds of people. There are panda punchers, there are panda huggers, there are panda watchers. So I'll let you figure out what those mean on your own. But I like to think of myself as a panda watcher, right? I'm just trying to interpret what it is that China's trying to do. But as a student of China and Chinese military behavior, please just know that when I try to explain Chinese behavior or attitudes, it might sound like I'm making an excuse for Beijing's behavior, and it may leave some thinking that I'm a panda hugger, but I'm really just trying to explain where China's coming from, so no judgment. But you know, if you don't like what I'm saying, please direct all your complaints to Slick, since he put me up <laughs> So Chinese history is is exceedingly complex, but the relevant timeline that we should be concerned about really began in the late 1800s. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there was this, this whole thing with the opium wars and the Brits and the colonial powers coming into China. The Chinese government, the Chinese empire at the time was super weak. And that in the late 1800s began this, uh, or actually the, the mid 1800s, I guess, really began what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. And that culminated in the fall of the Chinese empire. um, And then later on in the 1930s, the Japanese occupation that took us into the Second World War. And the Japanese occupation was particularly brutal. And it was really, you know, a, a low point in Chinese history, very humiliating for China. So, Fast forward to 1949, Mao Zedong and the communists have been in this civil war with the Chinese nationalists. Obviously, the Chinese communists win, uh, take over mainland China, but the nationalists, they all fled to Taiwan. So at the time, the U.S. supported the nationalists. They're all in Taiwan. And, you know, that was because during the Cold War, all communists were evil. So, you know, this is an important point. From the very beginning, the Chinese Communist Party and you know the government of China has always seen the U.S. as an adversary and a strategic competitor. In the 1950s, the U.S. was in Korea during the Korean conflict, and there you go. The People's Liberation Army come across the Yalu River and intervened. There was some friction between China and the Soviets in the 1960s, and China was really focused on its northern borders. But after that border conflict was resolved, China turned its attention back to the U.S. as a strategic competitor, and we were fighting Chinese MiGs over and around Vietnam. So even after the U.S. officially switched recognition from Taiwan to Beijing 
as the legitimate of government, the legitimate government of China in the 1970s, China still held out that there was the possibility, you know, because the U.S. continued to support Taiwan and continued to say that they would provide Taiwan with weapons of a defensive nature, China kept seeing the United States as this strategic competitor. So then more recently in the 1980s, China began to open up, they began to develop economically, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but but China had this strategy of, of biding their time and hiding their capabilities. You know, China saw itself as a weaker power. The United States and the Soviets were still engaged in the Cold War. So China's like, we're just going to sit back, let the two big boys fight it out and see what happens. But we're going to continue to develop, knowing that our primary threat is still the United States. So then um, 9-11 happened. We, uh, the United States, began to focus on the global war on terrorism. And Chinese military scholars started talking about this thing called the window of strategic opportunity. And it was really during this window of strategic opportunity that, you know, China, this new economic power, could really develop its economic and military might without bringing the gaze of the United States upon it. And that pretty much worked out for them. I went to Indo-PACOM in, in 2006, or PACOM at the time, and uh, man, I started, you know, I didn't know anything about China. I could barely spell PRC. And suddenly I was finding like China was developing all of these capabilities and fourth generation aircraft and all of these high-end air defense systems. And they were purchasing technology from the former Soviet Union. And I was like, dude, this is really bad. But we were still knee deep in Afghanistan and Iraq and the global war on terrorism. And it was just super hard. You know, it was, it was, it was very important to, to the PACOM commander and what was going on in PACOM, but it wasn't getting a whole lot of attention from the, from the rest of, uh, of DOD. So I guess that's a long way of answering your question about like, how do we find ourselves back here? China never left. China has always thought of the United States as one of its principal adversaries as the strategic opponent. And it's really just since the end of the global war on terrorism that the window of strategic opportunity that the Chinese were talking about has started to close. And in fact, the U.S. has, as they predicted, turned its gaze back to China and said, hey, what about that panda? Yeah, that is a great rundown, Mike, and, and I really appreciate it. And, and I just want to add quickly, you know, when you were talking about 2006, uh, I got my intro in 2007 as a brand new weapons officer spinning up a squadron to get ready to go to Iraq. And we find ourselves in Guam doing a theater security package for seven months. And you're right. I mean, we had our eyes opened as to what was going on uh, in, in PACOM at the time. Um, and it really really was one of those uh, goosebump moments where you go, holy smokes, we are so distracted in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there's something uh, super large brewing over here in the Pacific. And I'm glad that we had some awareness during that time, and obviously uh, we're you know laser-focused now. Going back to the report, how do we look at the motivations in play from a leadership set of perspectives? And, you know, we've got the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP, then the People's Liberation Army, and then the services. So what else is there? What and who are the players? And what are their motives and equities? And, and how does this impact the broader Chinese national security policy? Yeah, so that's a that's a really complicated question. We could probably do a, an entire podcast just on that. You know, 
who's who in the zoo running down everybody in the People's Republic of China. But I think what I would point out to the listeners and to you is, you know, we need to understand that by and large, there is only one voice coming out of China, and that is the voice of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is 100% in control. There is no opposition party within China to provide a different point of view. And the People's Liberation Army and all of the services under the People's Liberation Army 100% belong to the Chinese Communist Party. China does not have a national army. The Chinese army, or the Chinese military rather, the People's Liberation Army, swears its allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party and not to the Chinese constitution, not to the Chinese nation. It swears its allegiance to the party. It's a, it's a party army, a party military. That's an important distinction. All senior members of the People's Liberation Army and all the services are senior members of the Chinese Communist Party. So their views are 100% in line with the party's views. And if you've followed even a little bit what has happened over the last 10 years with Xi Jinping being in power in China, uh, he has done some house cleaning. And some of that was to root out some really deep endemic corruption within the institutions of government and the military. Um, but he's also used it as a tool to get rid of people who do not share his point of view. So any internal dissent within the Chinese Communist Party against Xi Jinping and his objectives has been effectively squashed. We talked on the last podcast about removing the defense minister, removing the, the heads of the PLA rocket force, which is kind of China's version of STRATCOM and also removing the Chinese foreign minister. That's all happened just within the last three or four months. It's more evidence of Xi Jinping consolidating his power, rooting out corruption, um, but really you know, consolidating things into that sort of one worldview, that one security policy view. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I, I think as Americans, we think that there's branches and balance and to understand that, like you said, these folks are just swearing their allegiance to the party and that's it. <laughs> There's no constitution that they're trying to uphold for their, for their people is, is really such as an American, a mind shift to, to really understand where, where they're coming from. So, so thanks for sh uh, shining the light on that. Yeah. And um, let, me, let me, let me go on with that just a little bit that people are like, you know, I, so I teach a class on, on China's military for a George Washington university graduate school program. And you know, one of the things that I tell the students, you know, you ask them like, well, what is the mission of China's military? What is the mission of the PLA? And you'll get a lot of answers about, you know, protecting Chinese rights and interests or, you know, invading Taiwan is like the principal primary mission of, of the PLA. Um, if you look at what the Chinese write about missions and tasks for the PLA, the number one priority mission for the PLA is to ensure that the Chinese Communist Party remains in power and that the PLA's primary task is to maintain its loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. It's that explicit in how they describe their own military. Those other things about rights and interests and you know preventing Taiwan independence and everything, those are all secondary objectives to that sort of number one objective. 
Understood. Thanks for sharpening the point on that one. That's uh, it's, it's really sobering. To, it's just different, right? Well, well, now I'm going to ask you to give us a comparison of sorts uh, as to how China's forces are made up and and how they compare to the U.S. And I know we can compare numbers, but given your expertise, how do we stack up? And uh, what about their organization? And do they have a similar model or use a similar model uh, like we do? Yeah. So, you know, traditionally they've got the three big branches, right? They've got a PLA army. Um, and, and I should say the Chinese language is a little bit weird. We call it the, the people's liberation army army. And that's like, why do you have to say army twice? And it's like, well, because really people's liberation army is the way it's always been translated. You could also translate it as, you know, people's liberation, military army, people's liberation, military air force people's liberation military navy but it's just a shorthand and it sounds a little odd to have the army air force the army navy and the army rocket force but that said they've got the three main branches the pla army the pla air force the pla navy so that aligns with kind of what we're doing in the united states the pla navy marine corps is decidedly a part of the marine corps they don't have any identity beyond being part of the PLA Navy. So that's a little bit different. And then of course, uh, the PLA has this thing called the rocket force used to be called the second artillery force until about 2015. Um, they changed the name and elevated the second artillery corps to a full service, the rocket force. And the rocket force is sort of like, sort of like Stratcom. And as much as they control all of the land-based nuclear weapons, but they also have this sizable uh, conventional missile force. And you know, one of the principal reasons why China has pursued this really robust conventional missile force while the United States did not, we would have put it in the Army or the Air Force or, or somewhere else, but it was really down to the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. You know, The Soviets and the United States entered into this treaty, and so we just never developed that kind of medium-range medium and intermediate range missile technology that we see in China's rocket force. Also in 2015, when they created the rocket force, they created this thing called the strategic support force. Now the strategic support force is not technically a full military service, but it is at the same command level as the military services that I was just talking about. The strategic support force really consolidates all of the information capabilities in the PLA under this one organization. So some people will say, well, it's like the strategic support force is like Cybercom. It is so much more than that. Really, the strategic support force is Cybercom, Space Command, and they control all of the strategic electronic warfare capabilities, which I think is an orphan within the Pentagon electronic warfare capabilities. So the strategic support force is really the thing that makes the PLA stand out as an organization. And, uh, and it reflects how they have, how they have consolidated around what they call informationized warfare, which I think we'll, we should talk about here in a little bit. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and using your term being a, a a China observer or a China watcher, you know, really get it from a scope and comparison that we are truly looking at a peerish type threat. And, uh, you know, they're pretty streamlined in its or in their organization. So I've got to ask you the next thing, what is your understanding about their training? Because that's something, you know, that we, we always uh, tend to, to, to look at from a military perspective. 
especially when we think about uh, what we get from our Intel sources that uh, we faced, you know, large numbers before thinking about the cold war and things like that. But training was always pointed out as a weak point. And we've seen headlines where former fighter pilots from, you know, allied nations have been working with the people's liberation army air force. So how is their training compared to what we're doing currently? So if you had asked me that question, when I first started looking at China, um, Gosh, how long has it been now? 18 years ago. I would have said, yeah, there's not a whole lot to worry about. 2006, 2007, when I was looking at the China Air Force and Air Defense Forces, a lot of the training was, most of the training, the vast majority of the training was scripted, right? Fun fact for your listeners, uh, China also plays red and blue in their exercises and in their training, Um, but China is always red and the enemy is always blue. So- you know, it's it's identical to how how we do it. They they take they take the red side. Um, so so back in the you know in the late aughts, uh, you know prior to uh, to twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, red always won in these scripted scenarios. They would sort of go through the motions. Uh, blue would put up a good fight, but in the end, red would always conquer and and red would always win in these in these training evolutions. So one of the things that happened when Xi Jinping came to power uh, and he started reforming the PLA and, and started reorganizing things into the, you know, the rocket force and they changed from these military regions into more operationally focused military theaters, Xi Jinping told, you know, from the very top, right, Xi Jinping told the PLA that they needed to focus on training in realistic combat conditions, right? This, this, uh, you know, red always wins in the training exercise, had to go the way of the dinosaur, and and the PLA needed to be brought kicking and screaming into the modern era with modern training methods. So that's when we actually started to see the rise of professional op four in China, professional blue forces in China that would study at first the Soviets and Soviet tactics or Russian tactics, but then Later on, they would become more sophisticated and they would start to study U.S. tactics. And so for the last 10 years or so, uh, there has been a huge shift in Chinese training against realistic blue forces, either you know Japanese forces, Taiwan forces, or U.S. forces. And red loses quite consistently. I mean, in the late teens, you know, the PLA commanders were talking pretty openly in their military newspapers and things like that about their frustrations where they were going to these training centers and, you know, they were, the the blue forces were wiping the floor with them. And they were engaging in this sort of communist party self-criticism sessions where they were talking about how they needed to improve and how they needed to improve their training and their processes. So that's happening. One of the things that I've seen recently, and I'd like to dig into this a little bit more when I get some time to do some research on my own, is something the Chinese talk about, quote, using the enemy to train the troops. Uh, It's a saying in Chinese. It's been around for a long time. But this using the enemy to train the troops is, is predicated on this idea that hostile encounters with the enemy will help strengthen the PLA's fighting spirit. And so when we hear about these uh, unsafe intercepts or close, you know, close encounters between PLA aircraft and U.S. aircraft or PLA ships and U.S. ships, it may reflect 
that idea that in order to get real world experience, China needs to look no farther than the East China Sea and the South China Sea, where there are adversaries like Japan and the United States operating. And Chinese commanders can go out there and, you know, Chinese pilots can go out there and get a, an up-close look at the adversary and can learn from those encounters. But, you know, these are people flying with real weapons that are not communicating with each other, and that could all go horribly wrong. So I think that's, uh, that's something I want to dig into a little bit more in my own research. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. The operational takeaway for those for those pilots is is just incredible. And, <laughs> you know, you're really, really sounding an alarm here of, you know, they are gaining real world experience and, and amazing intel just by being able to, you know, fly alongside for 15 minutes and and do that anytime they want. Um, so, yeah, that, that's going to be interesting to see uh, what your research drives out of that. I've got to ask you this now. What about training facilities? Do they have the equivalent of our, you know, training ranges uh, and exercises? Uh, of course, for me as a as a U.S. guy, I'm thinking about, you know, the Nellis Tactics and Training Range and China Lake, uh, you know, no pun intended, and and things like Weapon School and Red Flag and those types of things. So, what are they building out in that regard? Yeah, so there are no shortage of training ranges uh, out in out in northern and western China. Uh, it's often lost on people. You know, China China is not geographically or uh, not geographically anything like the United States. They don't have a West Coast. Most things, you know, when you get away from the East Coast of China and the big population centers um, and, and head out West, it is deserts and mountains. So there's, there's lots of, you know, lots of areas for missile test ranges and, and flight ranges and, and things like that. The Chinese don't really have an equivalent to something like the U.S. Air Force Weapons School or the Navy, Navy Fighter Weapons School. The closest thing is probably the uh, Songzhou Flight Test and Training Base. It's just south of Beijing. It was established in 1987. And that's where the PLA Air Force has its first Blue Force unit that, again, studies Western tactics and flies PLA aircraft the way they think the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Navy would fly against the Chinese Air Force. Um, compared to Nellis Dingshin Test and Training Base up in the uh, Mongolian Desert is is probably the most like Nellis. Uh, so this is where you see a lot of the what I guess would would be the equivalent of red flag type of exercises, big force force on force exercises. Um, it incorporates you know surface to air missile units, electronic warfare all the fighters and, and special mission aircraft and bombers that they can, they can get up there to that big base out in the desert. Uh, it's also the site of uh, what the Chinese call their annual golden helmet competition. Uh, golden helmet is an air to air combat competition. Some analysis I've seen has said that was similar to uh, an air force competition called William tell. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was big in the fifties and sixties. I think sure. the air force tried to revive it in, in 2004, some speculation that golden helmet is, is modeled after that, but it reflects, you know, this move uh, over the last 10 or 11 years toward, uh, you know, more free play and less scripted combat. And every year a pilot wins the golden helmet and he's heralded in the Chinese press as like, you know, the best pilot in the PLA Air Force. 
Well, Mike, thanks for helping us understand uh, so much of what's what's in the report as far as understanding China. But one of the most staggering things that you mentioned last week was the fact that the Chinese Air Force is projected to produce 100 J-20s starting this year uh, in 2023, uh, essentially doubling their fleet of J-20s. And it's obviously going to be a, a huge challenge to the 184 uh, F-22s that we have in our inventory. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I've taken a look at the factory where the F-22s are produced. This is all commercial open source imagery. You can find it on Google Earth. But it's really kind of amazing. When you map out the facilities that the Chinese have constructed at that aircraft plant over the last two years, they have added over 3 million square feet of factory floor to produce 5th gen and 4.5 gen aircraft just at that one plant, right? So you look at like where the F-35 is produced at plant four down in Texas, um, the Lockheed Martin facility. I think that entire facility is like six or seven million square feet, like 17,000 employees. So in addition to what was already there at that plant in China, which is substantial, they've added about half the square footage of the entire F-35 manufacturing facility. So that's concerning. But you look at that infrastructure and that kind of leads the way to this conclusion that they are ramping up production of fifth gen and 4.5 gen aircraft at that plant and the numbers uh, that we talked about. 100 J-20s a year starting this year in 2023, so doubling their inventory by 2024 and then probably on their way to something in the high hundreds by the 2030s. And if they continue, maybe as many as 1,000 J-20s by the early 2030s. So that gets to this idea, you know, that there is a certain quality in quantity. I'm not here to tell you that at the unclassified level, I've seen some analysis that says just the way the J20 is designed, it cannot possibly be as stealthy or have as, you know, the low observable properties of an F22 or an F35. So it may not be the world's best fifth gen aircraft the Chinese are going to have a lot of them, <laughs> right? And that counts for something. But they're not just producing fifth-gen aircraft. They are still producing lots and lots of fourth-gen aircraft. And some of the things that we're seeing is that they are now, uh, in addition to replacing third-generation aircraft, which are still in their inventory, and I think that's an important point, they are starting to now, in addition to replacing the third-generation aircraft, they are also starting to replace some of the older fourth-generation aircraft, with 5th gen and 4.5 gen aircraft. So the China military power report had this big numbers update. Frankly, it looked like maybe the Department of Defense had neglected to update the numbers for the last couple of years. And an analyst sort of caught up with this year's report. So they reported that 1,300 of 1,900 aircraft in the PLA inventory are 4th gen or 4.5 gen aircraft. So math doesn't play well on a podcast, but that means probably that five or 600 third generation aircraft or third generation fighters are still in the PLA uh, inventory. So these are J7 and, you know, older J7 and J8s, which are derivatives of the MiG-21. So, you know, not all that capable. But, you know, looking at those numbers, I think what we're going to see is because they're replacing these third-gen aircraft and the older fourth-gen aircraft, over the next several years, we're probably not going to see a 
big increase in that 1900 number. It might go up by 100 a year or something like that. Because again, they're taking aircraft out of the inventory and replacing them with newer aircraft. And, and that's concerning as well because, you know, in a few years, you'll probably have over 2,000 aircraft, most of which are less than 10 years old. And when you look at the age of the U.S. fighter fleet, that should be some cause for concern. The other thing that I'll just throw out there, and again, maybe this is something we could talk about on a future podcast, is that all of these third-generation aircraft, the J-7s, the J-8s, and then a whole bunch of older second-generation aircraft, like J-6s, which were like big 19s, the Chinese are converting all of those into unmanned combat aerial vehicles or UCAVs, right? Unmanned drones. And you can actually see in commercial satellite imagery, all of these drones at airfields along the Taiwan Strait. And you're like, well, hey, you know, I'm flying a fifth gen aircraft. What do I care about second or third generation drones, right? Those aren't going to, those aren't going to shoot me down. But the question you got to ask yourself is, on the first day of a conflict, if you see 50 fighter-sized targets coming across the Taiwan Strait and you've got six missiles to your name, what are you going to do? Well, they're drones, you know, like why would I waste my AMRAMs on these second and third generation aircraft? Well, those aircraft are headed to Taiwan and they're headed to targets in Taiwan. That's the idea, that these drones at the end of the day can just be missile sponges and they will shoot us out of, you know, naval missiles. They will shoot us out of Patriots and they will shoot us out of AMRAMs. And then, you know, the fourth gen and fifth gen aircraft come up from the rear. So again, I go back to that premise. There is a certain quality and quantity. That's what we're facing in China. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, that just that scenario itself should, should keep a lot of people up at night. I want to shift gears a little bit in the thinking and this idea of information eyes and intelligence-ized warfare, and we've talked about it before, but how do they define those pursuits, and how does that compare to our notion of information-age warfare via concepts like JADC2? Yeah, so this is, again, probably a topic for an entire podcast, so I'm going to try to contain myself because I could go on for about a half an hour, maybe an hour, maybe two hours about my thoughts on informationized and intelligentized warfare. So first of all, they're weird names, right? Whoever heard of an informationized warfare before we started talking about China? But the way it translates in Chinese, that that eyesed at the end is the Chinese character Hua. And it basically means, the, the character in Chinese means to be transformed by. So a more familiar term would be mechanized right? Transformed by machines. And so mechanized warfare is warfare transformed by machines. Informationized warfare is warfare transformed by information. Intelligentized warfare is warfare transformed by intelligent systems or artificial intelligence, you know, sort of the basis of the term. So where China got these ideas about informationized warfare based on my analysis, which I've been looking at for quite some time, they, they took informationized warfare from U.S. concepts of net-centric warfare that were being developed in the late 1990s, before the Department of Defense became focused on, you know, wars in Southwest Asia with 
counterinsurgency is the primary focus. So we had these big ideas in the late 1990s talking about net-centric warfare and the importance of information superiority in future warfare. As we became distracted by the global war on terrorism, China seized upon those ideas in the early 2000s and thought, this is a recipe for success. They looked at what happened in the 1991 Gulf War, how the United States dominated the information environment, striking communication centers, striking radar stations, jamming the electromagnetic spectrum, really dominating the battlefield information space and then picked apart the Iraqi military with long-range fires. China thought, that's a recipe for success. We want to be a modern military. That's what we're going to do. So China's been working on these ideas of informationized warfare for the last 20 years or so, and it really puts battle space information control at the center of Chinese operational concepts. So I want to make a clear distinction here. Informationized warfare is not about strategic information operations, right? It's, yes, that is going to happen. China would call that political warfare, where they're putting out messages on social media, where they're putting out press releases, where they're trying to dominate the strategic narrative in warfare. That's all happening. Informationized warfare is an operational concept. It is about dominating that battle space information. So it's about what do you see in your command center? What do you see in your air operations center? What do you see in your cockpit? What do you see on the bridge of your ship? And it's about shaping the perception of those pilots and commanders and that battle space information, right? So I think that China may, and I'm willing to have this debate with somebody, but I think China may in fact be ahead of us conceptually when we talk about information age warfare concepts, um, I've got my own opinions about JADC2. I will hold those at this time. But I see China's thinking, at least, even if their technology isn't where our technology is in 2023, China's thinking on informationized warfare is really quite impressive. Intelligentized warfare and this idea of AI, I would say, again, something to discuss in the future. But I would observe that the United States still has firepower and maneuver at the center of its operational concepts. And so we look to things like AI as how do we use AI to make firepower and maneuver better and faster? Like that's what AI is for, to make our operational concepts better and faster, firepower and maneuver. Well, China has adopted this informationized warfare concept, which again, I've argued, puts battle space information control at the center of their operational concepts. So China's looking to use AI and intelligentized warfare to make battle space information control better and faster and to use AI to shape those perceptions in the cockpit and the bridge of the ship and the command center and the things that I talked about and really use AI to engineer perceptions. And that leads into this whole conversation about cognitive warfare and what that means.
Yeah, again, Mike, just hitting these concepts so hard that uh, you're right. That is absolutely (laughs) another two-hour podcast in the making. Now, of course, we're here because of this report. So can you help our audience understand these reports? Uh, We put a link in the show notes so they can check out the report for themselves. But what are the key takeaways from a report like this? And frankly, how does one read this thing? Because I'm sure that there's a flow that you follow uh, from your perspective. Yeah, so I would not recommend reading this 200-plus page report cover to cover. You know, we we talked about this in the last podcast, that this thing we call the China Military Power Report, it's a report to Congress. It's required by the National Defense Authorization Act from uh, 2000. And, you know, not to be too cynical about this, but I think a lot of people consider the China Military Power Report to be some kind of public service provided by the DOD. But uh, mm, I think there are darker forces at play. It should really be understood that the China Military Power Report is more of a policy document than it is an open source intelligence report. So don't get me wrong, there's a lot of good open source intelligence in the China Military Power Report, but its main purpose, its stated purpose, is for DOD to communicate to Congress and to the American people what DOD wants Congress and the American people to know about China and the Chinese military. So I'm not saying there's any disinformation in the report, but it would be kind of naive to think that DOD wasn't going to, you know, emphasize things that are supporting DOD's agendas and DOD's budget requests. So the Department of Defense pretty clearly wants you to uh, take away a couple of things. First of all, China is increasing its military coercion activities over the past couple of years. You know, we talked last time about the Pentagon documenting over 180 instances of coercive and risky intercepts of U.S. aircraft. And just last week, In late October, we had those reports of a J-11 coming within 10 feet of a B-52. So that's, you know, that's going on. Again, using the enemy to train the troops. Talked about that. Um, Other significant developments uh, that are a huge focus of this year's report include uh, China's increasing nuclear capabilities, the construction of over 300 missile silos out in the Chinese desert. and, and all of that appears to mean that China's probably moved away from an assured second strike strategy to a launch on warning posture. And if you read back to the 2022 U.S. nuclear posture statement, there's speculation in there that China may be moving to a limited first strike capability uh, with, its, with its nuclear weapons. And that has huge implications for any kind of conflict in East Asia, just you know, based on what we have seen in the uh, the conflict in Ukraine where Russia rattled a nuclear saber and it's kind of kept NATO and the United States at bay, uh, funneling weapons into Ukraine, but not getting directly involved ourselves. I don't know if that answers your question about how to read the report, but those are some of the highlights. And and again, I wouldn't read it cover to cover. I would I would pick the sections that you're interested in uh, and, you know, do a word search for Air Force or fighters or whatever it is. And kind of, you know, pick out what you want to pick out of the report. Well, Mike, I really appreciate that breakdown. And it's always good to understand what an expert like you is looking at and what you're looking for uh, when it comes to these reports. And I think it's helpful to have that perspective if you don't do this every day. Uh, Now, shifting gears, uh, what are you, uh, and I, of course, want to stay unclassified here, but what does the report not say? uh, And what do you think it should? Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that the China Military Power Report is just an overview. There's a lot of good factual information in the report, but 
you know, there's only so much that you can say when you're trying to describe the entirety of the Chinese military and the challenges that the PLA poses to the Department of Defense. I think one of the things about the China Military Power Report that's concerning is that it's about a year out of date. The vast majority of information in the China Military Power Report is for calendar year 2022. That's it's the 2022 China Military Power Report. So um, there are very few updates uh, in 2023. And things are moving really fast in China. We've talked about some of those developments uh, just here on the podcast, and we didn't have time to talk about things like what's happening with upgrades to the J-20 and things that have come out uh, just this year in calendar year 2023. That'll be in next year's China Military Power Report. One of the things I expect we'll also see next year is what happened at the beginning of this year. Um, The China Aerospace Studies Institute, part of the U.S. Air University, released a report in late August that talked about a reorganization of the PLA Navy Air Force. Now, again, this gets in a little bit into the weeds, but the PLA Navy Air Force or PLA Navy Aviation Forces had always maintained a contingent of about 150 land-based combat aircraft that conducted maritime strikes and overwater patrols. And those operated side by side with the PLA Air Force, but it obviously created these command and control seams between the PLA Air Force and the PLA Navy. Well, in early 2023, over the course of about six months, all PLA Navy land-based combat aircraft were transferred to the PLA Air Force. Now, that bureaucratically was probably pretty painful for both the Navy and the Air Force, transferring all of those personnel, all of those aircraft, all of those airfields, all of those missile systems. Um, but it's happened, and, and it has arguably closed the, you know, whatever seams might have existed in terms of air and air defense uh, areas of responsibility between the Navy and the Air Force. So that's something to look out for. Well, Mike, I can't say thanks enough for your time today. We're extremely lucky to have you here at Mitchell, and we really appreciate you taking the time to break this report down for us. Thanks, Slick. I've really enjoyed this time. And uh, again, I think we've teed up a couple of great podcasts that we'll have to do in the future. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.